water pouring from the dunes now. There's cars toppled, buildings entirely crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I I really need to leave. So the fences informed me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I, I see some people running now. In the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. Exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, the official podcast of AquamanShrine.net and FirestormFan.com. I am one of your hosts, Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.net, and as you can probably guess by the fact that uh, Shag's not doing the intro, he is not here this week. Uh, little known fact, Shag is paid by the government to co-host the Fire and Water Podcast, and with the shutdown, he's not able to do it, so uh, he's off for the week. But I do have a co-host with me. Uh, the host of so many podcasts, I'm not even going to get into it all. Let's just say views from the long box. Michael Bailey, Mike, thanks for joining me on the show. <laughs> I'm glad I'm a private, uh, privately owned uh, podcast. <laughs> That's right. Host, then I get to be on the show. <laughs> yeah, poor, poor Shag. He's just sitting there. He's just he's locked out. He can't do it. It's unfortunate. <laughs> sitting there in his pool. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Mike's going to sit in for Shag this week, and we are going to talk about something that has sort of come up on the Who's Who podcast and occasionally on the Fire and Water show is the Earth 2 Aquaman. Because uh, responding to a letter uh, sent into Len Wein on the Who's Who podcast, and there was a sort of argument whether there really is an Earth 2 Aquaman. There is. There is enough of that nonsense, all of you who are saying, saying that there isn't. We're going to prove that by talking about the Earth 2 Aquaman's later appearances in the 80s, which are brief, all too brief, unfortunately. Uh, and they're all. I, I, I was about to say we're going to get Leonard Nimoy. It's going to be in search of the Earth Two. That'd be uh, awesome. The Earth Two Aquaman. That'd be awesome. He seems like the kind of guy that would do it if you could get if you could just uh, get a hold of him. First, we are going to talk about in stock trades. Uh, that's our sponsor. So this episode of Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to forty five percent off with free shipping for orders of fifty dollars or more. Uh, Mike, do you have a book you want to uh, promote from Inside Trades? Yeah, kind of going along with what we're talking about with All-Star Squadron and all that tonight, uh, I have the Infinity Incorporated, the Generation Saga hardcover. Unfortunately, the only volume. The second volume was solicited, but never came out. But this presents Infinity Incorporated, number one to four, All-Star Squadron, 25 to 26, and All-Star Squadron Annual, number two, which is basically the lead-up to Infinity Incorporated, 
This amazing hardcover written by Roy and Dan Thomas with artwork by Jerry the Extraordinary Ordway, uh, Mike Macklin, Tony DeZuniga, or DeZuniga. I screw that name up, too. It's <laughs> also listing Don Newton and Todd McFarlane. I don't know why they did later issues of Infinity Incorporated. Hmm. I don't remember them working on the first four. But anyways, they, all of this normally is thirty nine ninety nine, but with the 45% discount, you're getting this hardcover for $21.99. Sweet, sweet. Uh, I'm going to I'm talking about something similar. Um, Showcase presents All-Star Squadron Trade Paperback Volume 1. That's the giant edition. It reprints JLA number 193. Uh, well, the insert from JLA 193. And All-Star Squadron 1 through 18. Total pages 528. Normal price is $19.99. List price is $10.99. That's 45% off. That's at a ton of comics. It features a great cover by Joe Kubert of them bursting out of the newspaper as the JSA disbands. It's a super fun book. We love Everyone here loves the All-Star Squadron. So you can pick that up for only $10.99. Total deal from in-stock trades. And uh, we want to mention, for all these and all the other papers, trade paperback needs, visit InStockTrades.com, and we thank them for their sponsorship. As I said, we are going to talk about the Aquaman of Earth 2. Now, just a little bit of background for, for any of you that aren't familiar with it. Aquaman ran. Aquaman is one of the few characters that ran continuously through the 1950s. You know, after characters like Flash, Hawkman, and Adam, and Green Lantern all went away, Aquaman stayed in print in the back pages of Adventure Comics, along with Green Arrow, all the way through the 50s and into the 60s. So with those characters, and, and of course Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, there is no firm demarcation point as to when the Earth-2 versions stopped and the Earth-1 versions began. Uh, and in fact, the Earth-2 Golden Age versions of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman were basically absent from comics for, what, about five years, maybe more than that? Mm-hmm. Um, until they, that. Yeah, until they reappeared in Justice League. Uh, when they started doing the JLA-JSA crossovers, and I guess it was Julie Schwartz or Gardner Fox or someone who finally said, wait a minute, you know, we've already established that, that, that they, these heroes come from different planets, so we have to, you know, I guess there's two Superman now, two Batman, two Wonder Woman. That decision with Aquaman was never, I don't think, ever really fully made. Uh, it was always sort of assumed that this was always the same guy, and there were some text pieces in various editions. There was, I think, a... Uh, one of, uh, one of the matchheads mentioned in, like, a gaming book that it says that there was no Earth-2 Aquaman. There's, there's only the one Aquaman. And uh, I remember in more than one instance growing up, whenever they would do some flashback or some explaining panel of what Earth-1 and Earth-2 were, they would show how the, the, the planets were similar and how they were mm-hmm. different. And they would always show Flash and Flash, Green Lantern, Green Lantern, and Aquaman and Dr. Fate. <laughs> and they, which always confused me as a kid. I'm like, wait a minute, what do they do with each other? And they always, they said, well, Earth Two has Earth Two is the only planet with Doctor Fate, and Earth One's the only planet with Aquaman. So you know, it was sort of established that there only was one Aquaman, but that really makes no sense because, of course, you know, this was an Aquaman that fought in during World War Two. So you can't be the same guy. So yeah, and I, I think it's easier with characters like Flash and Green Lantern because they had they became totally different people, right? Um, when the the Silver Age came about, and the, the Superman of Earth Two is even kind of a a misnomer because starting in issue twenty three of Action Comics, Super Clark Kent was working at the Daily Planet. He, he he left for Europe working for the Daily Star, came back working for the Daily Planet, which I assume means there was some kind of hostile takeover. <laughs> while uh, he and Lois were abroad fighting Lex Luthor for the first time. 
So, but the the Earth Two Superman was always the one that that worked for the Daily Star, and that right. served right. to separate it. And and you know, even with Superman and Batman, there really is no clear line of demarcation. You can't say it's when Batman got the yellow oval on his chest right. because he was in the Justice League for years before that right. with just the bat on his chest. So it's 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 a weird nerd distinction, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. We're the only ones really obsessed with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mike's Amazing World of, of DC Comics, which is, you know, uh, truly like the site to use as research. I wouldn't be able to do half of what I do on the shrine without Mike's Amazing World. Uh, he alleges that it's adventure number 225 from 1958 that is the first appearance of the Silver Age Aquaman because that is the debut of Topo, the octopus, which is Aquaman's sidekick. I always thought that was shenanigans. You know, I'm like, oh, come on, that's that can't be it. I've always said that the, in my mind, the first appearance of, of the Silver Age version is in Adventure Comics number 260, 1959, which features the new origin, which features the son of a lighthouse keeper, you know, half Atlantean, half, you know, that's the Earth 2 Aquaman, the Golden Age Aquaman didn't have that origin. He was experimented on by his father and learned how to uh, breathe underwater and talk to fish. So to me, the, the beginning of the, the origin is, is clearly the demarcation. I keep saying that word, demarcation. The beginning of the Silver Age Aquaman. Mike doesn't agree with me, but, you know, Mike's Amazing World, I mean, doesn't agree with me on that. But, uh, but I'm willing to, you know, we can, we can all get along. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, in the 50s it was this fuzzy thing, and then in the 60s and the, in, the, well, the entirety of the 60s and the entirety of the 70s, they just completely ignored there ever being an Earth 2 Aquaman. That, they just completely dis, you know, never mentioned him. Um, the only, in the rare times they would reprint one of the Golden Age stories, they they would actually, um, like, do you remember that book, that 70s title, Secret Origins? I'm looking at it right now. Oh, look, at you're ahead of me. Okay. Yeah, in the 70s, they did a book called Secret Origins, which were just reprints of origin stories of some of their older characters. And number seven features Aquaman, and they reprinted his origin story, his first appearance from More Fun Comics number 73, and they actually went and color-corrected his gloves <laughs> to, change, to change them from yellow to green to make it more like the Earth-1 Aquaman. So they were really trying to sort of just say, no, 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 this is all the same guy, it's all the same guy. But um, uh, and, and it pretty much stayed that way, like I said, for, for two and a half decades until 1984, in All-Star Squadron number 31, cover dated March 1984, written by Roy Thomas, of course. Um, it features a, uh, a, a classic uh, Uncle Sam cover. It's got Uncle Sam pointing to the camera, and he says, Uncle Sam wants you to save the world. And you've got a bunch of the JSAers and All-Star Squadrons running towards this, uh, the uh, camera. It's, it's uh, drawn by Jerry Ordway, the extraordinary Jerry Ordway. Um, and it's this issue that features the first quasi-appearance of the Earth 2 Aquaman in 25 years. Uh, how, I, Mike, do you want to do the setup for this issue? Because I know you, I'm sure you know it as well as I do. Well, this was the beginning of the, uh, the story that I now like to call the story that is the bane of Shag's existence. <laughs> because it, it, it's the start of the setup to how the quality characters, which were Uncle Sam, Black Condor, the Ray... Uh, human bomb, etc., went from being Earth Two bound to going over to Earth X. Uh, th th this it's a great issue in and of itself. You got this really moody intro with a guy who looks a lot like the Spirit, but his name is Midnight. Midnight, yeah. Uh, even though they do a little Spirit joke 
with his name in the puddle. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like they would do in the old spirit comics. And he's rushing along. He's being fired upon by Nazis and he's carrying a box. And when he gets, he gets to the first full meeting and this was a significant issue because this was the first time that everybody showed up to a meeting of the all-star squadron because back in, you know, the first storyline, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, you are the all-star squadron. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I love it. I figured you'd like that. Uh, and, but they never got the whole group together because basically to be in the all-star squadron, you just had to be a mystery man in World War II. <laughs> <laughs> there was really no other. They didn't have a qualifier. It's not like the Justice League or even the Justice Society, uh, who all were kind of enveloped into the, the All-Star Squadron, they had never gotten the whole group together. And that's, that's one of the great things about this issue is they have two, not one, two two-page splashes. Yes. Showing everybody sitting together and their names and who they are. And they even, what I love is because Roy Thomas learned at the hand of uh, Stan Lee of saying that, you know, everybody on the panel has to say something. Not only do you get their names, but you get their little, like, a little bit of personality with them. Yes. <laughs> like, like, it's like Mr. America, here, Sargon the Sor Sorcerer, present, Mr. Terrific, here, and feeling great. <laughs> and that's when Uncle, the, Uncle Sam comes in, you know, is, is like doom and gloom, and then Midnight busts in, and the, turns out the package he was carrying had Doll Man in it, and he's injured because... Uncle Sam somehow got over to Earth, this parallel Earth where the Nazis were winning, and they've got to go over and save a bunch of people, so they get a team together, and wouldn't you know it, it's basically the team that would become the Freedom Fighters. <laughs> what dumb luck. <laughs> it's almost like it was planned. <laughs> almost. Uh, yeah, and it's it's during this sequence, which is, like I said, it talks about every, get, everybody gets like a little bit of character beat, which is enormously fun. And there's a great part, which even as a kid I got, it's kind of a, that's not a dirty joke, but it's a little more of a lewd joke, where uh, she goes, you know, Johnny Quick, Green Lantern. And then she goes, the Atom. And he goes, huh? What? Oh, here. <laughs> <laughs> and then Liberty Bell goes, you seem distracted by something, Adam. Phantom Lady? And she says, here. <laughs> and then and then Liberty Bell goes, now I understand. <laughs> Johnny Thunder? And yeah, like, he, yeah. is totally, he is totally checking out her rap. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I th and I think Plastic Man is, too. Yeah, he's got he's leaning into the frame over Superman, but even at thirteen, I was like, "Oh, I get that. That's funny." You know, I was like, "That's a good joke." And uh, there's another recurring bet that there's there's two Manhunters, two different yes. characters named Manhunter, and they just resent the living crap out of each other. <laughs> and uh, Liberty Bell says to the first one, "Manhunter," and he says, "Here." And then she gets to the second one, and she goes, "Uh, the other Manhunter," and he goes, "That one's already answered. The real Manhunter is right here." <laughs> I love the idea that superheroes could be kind of dicks. <laughs> like, that's kind of a fun idea that they would have these little petty squabbles with one another. I think that was wonderful. And I, and I like how they he they framed Green Arrow, Speedy, Wing, and Crimson Avenger. And Speedy and Wing are kind of having their own little conversation. Yes, yeah. In, in the whole thing. And, and obviously Mr. Terrific is questioning Sargon the Sorcerer's fashion sense. <laughs> uh, wondering why the hell he's... I mean, he, 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 won't, he won't insult him because, you know, Mr. Terrific is all about fair play. Oh, fair play, yes. It's, it's written on his chest, but... Uh, <laughs> and the Ray's just like, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How y'all doing? <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great, great bit. It really is. But it's in, in this sequence, after she takes roll call, she mentions that there are, in fact, a couple of characters who, a couple of heroes not have been able to show up. 
And it's on page 15 that she talks about this. And she says, Shining Knight isn't here because he's protecting Winston Churchill. And uh, Amazing Man is not here because he's not sure he wants to be a superhero. And then she drops the bomb. She says, Aquaman has proved difficult to contact through normal channels since he's generally at sea. And there is a little shot of a Aquaman with yellow gloves and yellow fins swimming through the water. And I can remember buying this comic off the stands at age 13. And I had always figured that there were two Aquaman. But this panel confirming that it really did blow my 13-year-old mind. I was just like, wow, there he is. I was so excited. Even though this appearance is like even less than a cameo. I was so thrilled. I was so thrilled about it. I knew it. Yeah, it was just it verified everything. I was like, hey, there he is. He's right there. Plus, it's drawn beautifully. I mean, he looks yes. great. He looks really beefy and very heroic. Um, it's a really, really fun. But this, that was, um, you know, the, the, Roy Thomas took it upon himself to just basically say, no, there's an Earth 2 Aquaman. You know, and I'm showing him right here. And this, it doesn't make sense why there wouldn't be. I, no, I don't understand no. why everybody gets a counterpart. I mean, you can't say because it can't be also Arthur Curry because, well, Clark Kent is Clark Kent, which was yeah. always kind of the the hole in the logic of Gardner Fox dreaming up the, you know, Earth 2 Flash's adventures to write the comics that right. would inspire Barry Allen. Because did he, did he just not see who Superman was? He, like, got to see who, like, everything about Jay Garrick and, and yeah, all that. But yeah, yeah. No. No, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, they were all blacked out for some reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they really, you know, they, there was nothing nothing wrong with that idea at all. And in fact, of course, uh, now that was the only appearance Big Earth 2 Aquaman made for another uh, two years. I mean, it was, just, it, was just, it was just that little mention, and that was it. Um, but obviously DC finally realized, well, yeah, there was an Earth 2 Aquaman because, um, as we jump forward a little bit, move up to All-Star Squadron number 59, which is the beginning of the end of the, well, not the beginning of the end, the end of <laughs> of the pre-crisis universe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's got a cover date of July 1986, so it's seven months after the crisis Wasn't ended. That and that, that, wow, okay. Yeah, it, it's, it's the weird thing about the post-crisis era, because I think there's a perception among newer, people newer to the DC universe and that history, that once the crisis was over, Man of Steel number one came out like the next day. And there was actually like a six month period between crisis ending and the major books kind of catching up with the new universe. The only one that I could think that really started the ground running would be Booster Gold, because that, hmm. that was like right there, like two months after crisis ended, Booster Gold number one came out. And that would be the first to me, kind of new DC title post-crisis, like which a, is... Yeah, Bronze Age type thing. Which is why some people actually consider the first appearance of the post-crisis Superman to be in Booster Gold. Ooh. Because he had a guest appearance <laughs> right around the time Man of Steel was happening. That's interesting. I mean, I'm sure so, I read that because I bought Booster Gold when it came out, but I never really would have thought of that before. Yeah, well, when you do a, a a podcast that's completely dedicated to the post-crisis Superman, you're, come you're up, guess, sort of yeah. forced to think about these yeah, things. Yeah, it's going to have to come up. But, no, this is... It's kind of funny because the crisis, in many ways, completely screwed Roy Thomas over. Oh, it did. In, in terms of what he was doing. And I, uh, my, my lovely wife, a few years ago, got me the absolute crisis for Christmas. Oh, boy. And the... 
there's a companion book that comes with that, that not only reprints those two indexes that came out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the Crisis Index and the Crossover Index, but it has this very exhaustive, like over half the book is filled with memos from people at DC all the while in the original plot for Crisis and all this stuff. And, you know, they included Roy Thomas pretty early because, one, he was one of their, you know, getting to be one of their writer-editors, which is something Dick Giordano did shortly after Roy Thomas came to the company. Right. And he wrote them, his initial, his initial, is this, his initial memo to them has 27 suggestions <laughs> for things that they could do. And, and really, if you ever get the, the chance to buy this book cheap, get it just for this companion, because some of the, some of the things he writes in here, are, like, really strange. Like, wow, you're actually saying that out loud? I'm glad we never really got to... Do you have it in front of you? I have it right in front of me. Oh, you got to... Come on, you got to lay some of them on us here. Okay, let me... Um, <laughs> we off the old Sandman, maybe even Sandy if you want. Though I had vague plans to guest star him in Infinity Incorporated and somehow put their life essence maybe to save the dream stream into the 1970s Sandman. Then, except for 1942 appearances of the old Sandman, which won't be that common, DC will have just one Sandman. As I've mentioned before, the Earth 2 Superman has begun to think, even after the effects of the stream of ruthlessness wear off, that Earth isn't for him. have to coordinate this with with, uh, some ideas I have for a son of Superman uh, and Lois on Earth 2, a guy who's halfway between Kryptonian human, he leaps an eighth of a mile, etc., and never progresses beyond there, as Power Girl has, perhaps emphasizes his mind, not his body, and oh yes, he becomes a bad guy. Oh my lord. <laughs> so, and it's really funny because at the end he goes, anyway, those are some ideas, want to see what the three of you think, because uh, this is to Len, Marv, and Dick Giordano. Obviously, only a few of these will be used as most, but I'd like to cooperate with the Crisis Project as much as possible, though I would appreciate it if DC would arrange to pay something for this work. After the last round of non-raises, I must admit that my desire to do freebie-type stuff for DC as opposed to U3 is at an all-time low for the present, but don't get me wrong, I love comic books. I, uh, you know, I never had a full appreciation until you know, later, like, I, I mean, all the different legwork Roy Thomas had to do to retrofit his stories into the into the books that had already existed. And imagine doing all that pre-Google. I mean, just, I mean, just the sheer logistics of all the notes he had to have taken to, mm-hmm. to, to keep all that stuff straight. It's just beyond me, you know. I And, you know, it's funny. People, he gets kind of a bad rap for, like, retrofitting. I, I I knew somebody that once called his work retconning, and his work isn't retconning. Retconning is just wiping the slate clean, and he well, never, it's, he never did that. He worked his best to fit things in, not not always very gracefully. Sometimes <laughs> Black Canary Origin, but uh, <laughs> but 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 other times it was really very clever. And I think I, I always found the stuff in All Star Squadron to be really fun. You know the way he interwove the JSA stories with. The, the quote-unquote new stuff in All-Star Squadron. I think it's retconning is in the modern term of it, because if you read the letters pages of All-Star Squadron, retcom actually makes one of its first appearances in the lexicon. Oh, really? In the, in the, pages, in the letter pages. Because he says somebody has used the term retcon, and I think, and he kind of disagreed with it, but he goes, well, that works, you know, for lack of another phrase. Hmm. But when, when Crisis was being planned... At first, DC told him he could keep Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Okay. And then they changed their minds because 
and I, and I have to agree with him. How does that work? You know, yeah, you can't, you can't have this title that takes place in the modern era, but or that takes place in the new continuity. But there's a Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman running around in World War II, and now we're saying that this Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman are the first Wonder Womans, uh, or the first of those characters. And he found this out, actually, at a convention. He was in London. Mar- he ran into Marv Wolfman, if I'm getting from the, the way the book kind of laid it out. He ran into Marv Wolfman. He wasn't even supposed to be there, and he was like, oh, by the way, you can't use those. But you can still have Green Arrow and Speedy. And then later on, after after the publication of issue sixty, which we'll be talking about in a minute, they're like, "No, you can't have them either." So. <laughs> Thanks, now, guys. Be, now, to be fair, Young All Stars as a title, while not having the same, it was very different from All Star Squadron as a team and as a concept, uh, just because of the characters he was using. But he would kind of get back at them by creating a Nazi team called Axis America, which had Ubermensch and a Valkyrie and Deflator Mouse and his son and this Golden Archer character. It was like, okay, you, I can't have Superman and Batman. Okay, I'm making them all bad guys. <laughs> and they're Nazis, so screw you. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, it is funny to sort of like, you know, here you can have these characters. No, no, you can't. Like, oh, come on. Yeah, geez. <laughs> You can have TNT and Dan the Dynamite. No, no, you can't. Oh, I don't know. I can't do the book without them. Uh. Another thing I'd recommend is go over to the Tomorrow's website and pick up issue 100 of, of Alter Ego. Okay. It's uh, it's it's more of a book than the magazine because it was a, it was a double sized issue, and basically he lays out his entire DC career. Oh, really? Oh, cool. All right. And it's it's a really fascinating interview because it seemed like a lot of DC at this time was, okay, we're going to bring you on. You can't do that. <laughs> okay, here you go. I can't do that. And <laughs> it's like throughout the interview, he's constantly having to say, now, it may seem like I'm complaining, but I actually had a good time doing it. <laughs> that was the interview where I found out that the Crimson Avenger miniseries was drawn by a convicted murderer. Drawn by a convicted murderer, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's favorite piece of nasty trivia in the comic book world. Uh, wow, that's dark. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so so yeah. Oh, and, as we were talking about, Aquaman uh, made his little brief little cameo in number thirty-one, and then he reappears in number fifty-nine, and in a big way. And the book opens with him showing up. It's uh, Sunday, nineteen April, nineteen forty-two. He pops up out of the water. Uh, he walks into uh, the grounds of the Ulster Squadron's base, which is, of course, the New York Fairgrounds. He jumps over the fence. As they put it, a 10-foot electrified fence is hurtled with little apparent effort. Yes, because he's Aquaman. <laughs> so he lands over. He jumps over the fence. We don't see who this guy is. I mean, we all know who he is, but he's, he's sort of draped in shadow. He opens the door. All of a sudden, the lights go on, and he is facing, like, <laughs> this double-page spread of, like, what, like 30 people. Mm-hmm. All ready to attack him all at once, which I love this double page spread for its insanity because you've got Superman flying at him and Green Lantern flying at him and Doctor Fate, and then off in the off in the, the right hand side is Batman with a batarang. Like, oh, thanks, Batman. That's really going to help. You know, we're going on the other side. You have Green Arrow and Speedy with their arrows out, and Doctor Fate looks like he's about to punch him in the face. Yeah, yeah. Like, I really, you know, really, Batman. It's really going to help throwing this little little batarang at us. That's great. Um, but anyway, I, he Aquaman shows up and he says, "Hey, what gives you guys any? What what gives with you guys anyway? You act like I haven't gotten an invite to this clam bake." And it turns out that this is in fact 
you know, Aquaman, and they real they recognize him immediately. Like, okay, and there's a bit of a back and forth about, you know, why do you why do you never show up? You're never ever here, you know. But he's like, well, I'm kind of tough, and he even cops to the fact that he's uh, he says, I'm not exactly going to get a gold star for perfect attendance, am I? But he does show up, so then he's there, and he's got his yellow gloves, and everything else is, you know, great. And then they kind of get go into the the other plot of the book, which involves Robot Man and his robot partner Mechanique. And this uh, this is a great little you know we talked about it in the previous issue about the little bits of dialogue you know and everybody gets a, l- a little bit of their character revealed by saying one or two words or one or two sentences. So in this issue, the JSA uh, or the Ultra Squadron want Robot Man to turn over Mechanique, his erstwhile robot girlfriend, because they're afraid she's going to turn evil or something. I'm trying to remember the story of. Do you remember it? Well, I, I, I reread it in preparation for this, and basically, Robot Man took her the previous issue, and they think she might be a Nazi spy. That's they right, just don't right. trust the situation, right. so they want to, you know, they, they want him to bring her back, and they even put it to a vote. They put it to a vote. This is great. Another great sequence. For some reason, everything involving Aquaman has Liberty Bell taking votes or taking names, but it's a full page of just headshots, and everybody gets to vote. About whether Mechanique should be, Robot Man should be forced to turn over Mechanique. So it goes through everybody, and it goes Airwave, and he votes yes, and Amazing Man votes no. But what I love is when it gets to Aquaman, his vote is no, which is kind of going against the grain of the All Star Squadron. And I, I sort of love that little detail that this is a guy who has just shown up for the first time, and yet he's still kind of bucking the system. I absolutely love that. I think that's fantastic. I got it that he was saying no because he didn't really know the situation, so he, he doesn't have a dog in the race. So it's just like, uh, I don't know what's going on. No. <laughs> well, maybe no. he could have voted with the group. That, although he was the third vote, so maybe he didn't know how it was going to go. But I, I have to think, without you know, maybe putting too much emphasis on this, but I have to think that like the the ones who vote no in the, in the lineup, which is Amazing Man, uh, Aquaman, The Flash... Um, who else votes no? Hawk, Hawk Girl. Girl. Hawk Girl Guardian. votes no. Guardian votes no. Uh, I love when they get to Robot Man. He goes, I refuse to recognize this vote. Uh, <laughs> uh, Speedy votes no. Sticking with his partner. Tarantula votes no. Vigilante votes no. The Whip votes no. Um, Mr. Terrific, who is all about fair play, votes no. He votes no. no. Uh, and Mr. America. And Mr. America. Now, am I am I totally overthinking this and saying that it seems to be that all of the characters who are not... Uh, are something other than strictly Caucasian all voted no? No, I'll I'll I'll, I'll go with that. I mean, Mr. You know, America, the Web, Amazing Man. You know, it's it's. I thought that was. I maybe thought that was Roy Thomas dropping in just like an ever slight touch of political commentary of like you know the some of the the characters who are not you know white guys are a little less ready to just force Robot Man to turn over. Yeah, his because girlfriend. the Earth to Speedy is. Is he part Native American? Yes, yes, he was. That's right. Okay, so yeah, that, and, and Stripesy is probably just trying to piss off Sylvester. Oh uh, yeah, Stripesy votes yeah. no. That's right. Yeah, Stripesy votes. Stripesy votes no. And, and Tarantula votes no, just for his future book that he's going to be writing about <laughs> all of this. So, God, I love that costume. That is that is fun. So, so anyway, the vote ends up being yes. It ends up they say Robot Man, you have to turn Mechanique over, and Robot Man just flat says no, I'm not doing it. So I don't care. Uh, and, that's, and that's pretty much the end of that. And that is all, unfortunately, Aquaman, because the story at that point moves over to 
the mechanique Roboman story and features Green Lantern and Airwave and Shining Knight and Firebrand. But that's that's it for Aquaman in that issue. He does not appear again in the rest of the comic. So. <laughs> yeah, Airwave gets to grow, go with the crew, but Aquaman doesn't. That yeah. seems fair. Yeah. Though they use his powers, uh, I, 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 uh, to be fair, Airwave is used as a plot point uh, more than anything. But still, I'm like, really, Airwave? Yeah. <laughs> of all the people that are going to be showing up, Airwave? Really? Okay. Yeah, Roy Thomas had his favorites, I guess. You know, who he wanted to give some <laughs> airtime to. I mean, it was funny. Considering how little Aquaman gets used, I still sort of always appreciated Roy doing this, you know, drafting him into the Earth, too. Um, so then Aquaman makes one more appearance in the following issue, which is All-Star Squadron number 60, August 1986, and with a cover by Jerry Ordway. Beautiful, beautiful cover. Um, and this is the... Uh, Basically, well, we'll get to it in a second, actually, when it actually happens. The JSA returns. Uh, there's the conclusion to the Roboman Mechanique story. There's a whole bunch of wrapping up of subplots. Everybody reconnoiters back at the uh, headquarters. There's a great panel where Aquaman shows up and Starman starts talking to him. And Starman's like, actually, it was more like another... Adv- hey, wait a minute, aren't you? And Batman's like, yes, Starman, that really is an Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> um so anyway, the whole gist of this is that everyone is here to f- pose for a photo for FDR, a group photo for FDR. So there is a great double-page spread of all the heroes posing. And in the back row, starting – here we go. Starting from the left – I'm going to go through them all. What the hell? We're going to do – starting from the left, back row, we've got Star Spangled Kid, Stripesy, Crimson Avenger, Wing, Tarantula, Hourman, Firebrand, Shining Knight, Starman, Airwave, Vigilante, Johnny Thunder, The Whip – Zatara, Dr. Occult, Mr. America, Sargon the Sorcerer, Mr. Terrific, TNT, Dan the Dynamite, Sandman, Sandy, Guardian, Wildcat, Dr. Midnight, Manhunter, Speedy, Green Arrow, Amazing Man, Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, Robot Man, Dr. Fate, Adam, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Superman, Batman, Robin, Flash, Hawkgirl, Hawkman, Green Lantern, and the Spectre. I, um, I like in the positioning of this the composition that they put Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Superman, Batman, and Robin all together. Right. Because they're the only ones that survived through the fifties. Right. Right. And having their own title or own the, I mean, Green Arrow was still, wasn't he, was he continuously published in adventure? Yes, he was. He was. So, but (laughs) I guess this is Roy going, well, who gives a shit about it? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I think Green Arrow was like retro, like retro, retroactively like, Oh wait, we got to get rid of him too. So anyway, they continue with the subplots and more. And there's just stuff with a whole bunch of things with, with mechanique again. And then at the end of the book, the photo is delivered to FDR. And he says there, and he goes, here, do, do, do you want to get that page so you can read it? You do a better FDR than yeah. I do. My yes, there are a lot of you out there. Don't worry your heads about a few no-shows. Why, every mystery man I can think of seems to be present and accounted for. Matter of fact, any costumed hero who isn't in this photo must be so obscure that no one has ever heard of them. Right, and in this photo, it's the same exact shot that we saw a couple pages earlier, except uh, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Superman, Batman, and Robin are now replaced in the photo by Phantom Lady, Black Condor, Uncle Sam, The Ray, and Plastic Man. And you can literally say... And in the back, Human Bomb and the Jester were at. Oh, that's right. Human, yeah, good to go. Jeez, I forgot that. Good catch. Yeah, you can see the Human Bomb and the Jester stuck in the background there. Uh, and so this is like literally the beginning of the, the crisis wave taking over, changing history. I mean, it's literally in this moment uh, of, of it all happening. And from that moment on, Aquaman of Earth 2 obliterated. From DC's history. So, <laughs> never. And, and the title itself changed because this is when they moved into, while well, he was kind of figuring out what he was going to do with the title, 
This is when they moved into like a series of secret origins. Right. Yeah. The book kept the book kept going for seven more issues after this, and it was all one issue, one offs featuring yeah, as you said, the secret origins. But yeah, this is like sort of the last incontinuity, full on story. And I remember, you know, being upset that, you know, Aquaman was brought into the book just to be obliterated from existence. (laughs) Can't the poor guy catch a break? Um, But I did appreciate that he, you know, was allowed to be part of it. You know, I mean, it was after DC had denied his existence for 20 some odd years. They were like, oh, no, no, wait, we really got to make sure. I mean, they got to go out of their way to get rid of him. In the All-Star Companion Volume 2 which uh, you can also find it in stock trades, by the way. Oh, nice. The, it, it is basically the, the companion that covered All-Star Squadron from beginning to end. And then the notes section on 59, it said, uh, Roy Thomas directed that Aquaman's glove be colored yellow. This is a minor differentiation with the green-gloved Earth-1 version. But the Sea King's hand is still wound up the same color as his face on page 1, which <laughs> if you look at that last panel, it is screwed up. Aquaman remarks, I'm not exactly going to get a gold star for attendance, am I? Well, no. And Aquaman doesn't recognize our man, so the latter says he's forgotten but not gone, a, lighter, a line the humor mag National Lampoon used to refer to Mamie Mrs. Dwight Eisenhower while she was still living. Oh, and uh, apparently when Batman says he and Robin were awfully busy over in Gotham City, Firebrand snaps, we're all busy. Uh, Batman. This is an offhand reference to the fact that Superman and Batman always seem to be too busy to attend regular meetings of the JSA back at early All-Star Day. I do enjoy that. I, I don't like the heroes now fighting with each other, but I did like the squabbling. I have to admit, I find that sort of Because then it was more like people being like making snide comments to yeah, each other, not, not like getting into a fight. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, because the, the, one of the great things about All-Star Squadron is that Roy Thomas not only got to play with some very obscure characters, but he got to make them into characters. I mean, I've I've never read really like the golden age adventures of Johnny Quick or Liberty Bell or anything like that, but they were kind of blank slates because who at this time, especially younger readers at this time, who even knew that these characters existed? Oh yeah. Much less would go track down there. I mean, you can kind of do that today illegally, uh, but he would kind of give them these personalities, and, and especially down the road, he kind of made Starman kind of a bigot. Did he really? I don't, yeah, I don't he was because Tsunami was made part of the Young All Stars. That's right. And okay. basically, Starman had Sandy go with the group to keep an eye on her. <laughs> well, you and, know, which is completely, completely in keeping with the time. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not everybody is going to be the bastion of forward 80s thinking. Yeah. You know, you know you're going to have some people that don't trust each other. And I think, you know, it, I don't know if you ever read Golden Age by James Robinson. Oh, I, yeah, I love that series. I mean, that, that's kind of dirtying up this era, but at the same time, it celebrates it. And you can kind of see that in everything they do, especially with the Green Lantern. But, you know, just just finding out who didn't like who and who... You know, just who was backbiting, and, and, and they were constantly arguing. You got more than five of these characters together in the perisphere, and an argument would break out. <laughs> and again, that's because Roy Thomas learned comic writing, you know, kind of interned with Stan, Stan Lee, Lee sure. who was always, I mean, it's just like over, uh, we haven't done an episode in quite some time, but my friend Scott Gardner and I do a show called Tales of the Justice Society of America over at TwoTrueFreaks.com. And we started, when we started the show, we started with All-Star number 58, which was the first appearance of the dumbest name ever, the Super Squad. Uh, 
It's like, really, Jerry? That's like the best name you can come up with for your new... Uh, never mind. Okay, we're going to move on. But we eventually got into All-Star Squadron, and the one thing that we know that we noticed right away with Roy is that if there were more than three characters in the panel, all three characters had to say something. <laughs> and that's a very Stan Lee thing to do. You know, he couldn't very well leave... You know, he couldn't just leave a, 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 a silent and leave the conversation between the two one. But unfortunately, that led to a lot of, like, really silly type of dialogue, like... I'm going to go stand over here. <laughs> and that's what he does. So. <laughs> yeah, well, and you got to fill those balloons eventually, you know. <laughs> it's like he was being painted by the consonant or something. <laughs> but, no, but, you know, the, the Earth 2 Aquaman, I, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I like Aquaman. I think, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I've said on other shows that Aquaman, I think, is one of the pillars of the DC Universe. Uh, Thank you, Mike. I, the, the, the Trinity as a concept was a great marketing gimmick back in Dan DiDio's early days of DC. But really, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, if you look at their history, even pre-crisis, these characters had very little to do with each other. It, Wonder Woman was always off doing her thing. Superman was always off doing his thing. Him and Batman hung out. But it's like there was never really a sense that he, that Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman shared this great friendship. I was always of the, and this is really because of how Grant Morrison set up the JLA, it was the Magnificent Seven. These are the seven characters in one form or another that have to be there for the DC universe to work. And Aquaman, you know, between that and being raised on the Super Friends yep. and never yep. really thinking he was lame on the Super Friends, even when I was a kid, you know, I always thought that he should be there. So to, to, ha to say that, oh, well, he doesn't exist in Earth 2 seems kind of trivial on the part of a writer that may not like Aquaman all that much. Right. I know that, like, Frank, uh, Diablo Frank argues with me about this, because I still think that him being him being continually published, I mean, is significant. I mean, I, I don't know how they figured sales, uh, how they determined what backup features sold what back then, uh, because, you know, I guess they got letters. I mean, you know, if you, I mean, Superboy was the star of Adventure Comics, and the backups yes. were Green Arrow and Aquaman. Now, they must have gotten a certain amount of mail relating to those features, but they something made them keep those two characters going above any others. You know, they could have gotten rid of Aquaman, they could have gotten rid of Green Arrow and replaced him with Hawkman, replaced him with Flash, but they didn't. And so to me, the fact that they remained in, in publication uh, is, is a significant, you know, contribution to comics history. And of course it helped them, you know, be around and helped Aquaman be there for the debut of the Justice League when, when Julius Schwartz put that team together. Um, and, you know, without that, Aquaman would not have been included. He probably would be almost like Liberty Bell. I, you know, I mean, I think it had he... Had, had yeah, he, he, he was that obscure character in the back of Adventure Comics, but yep. now we're going to put him... And again, it's because he was an, a part of that initial Justice League lineup. Yep. As the DC Universe evolved, because you could argue if you go back to the JSA, that, you know, Superman and Batman weren't really a part of that team, that those are the pillars, but they all disappeared. Uh, they were all canceled for in, at one point or another. I th I'm trying to remember if JSA was canceled first and then like a year or two later Flash got canceled or if it was the other way around, like Flash gets canceled, but uh, All-Star keeps up with the JSA for a couple more years after that. I seem to think it was uh, All-Star that, that was the last one to give up the ghost. And then... The, the the story that Roy Thomas tells is that he finally got a subscription to All Star Comics because <laughs> he was such an all he was such a JSA fan and the first issue he gets is when it became All Star, all -Star Western. Western yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I want my dime back, you son of a bitch. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, for, for comic fans that don't remember any of this stuff or even, you know, no, no bother to look it up, uh, most of the DC hero books in the late 40s, early, mostly early 50s, all had format changes. Uh, they kept the, the titles going, but they changed mm-hmm. formats. And in, in initially, like Aquaman's first book that he appeared in was in More Fun Comics, and he ran in that until from issue 73 through 101, and then they changed More Fun Comics to an all-humor format. And it got, they got rid of all the superheroes and moved them over to adventure comics. I still don't understand the point of that. Because they literally took every feature out of adventure, out of more fun to put it in adventure. Like, why do you just leave, why don't you just change adventure and leave more fun? You know, whatever. Um, but he moved over to adventure, and that's where he stayed for the entire decade of the 1950. And then he got a couple of backups. Although at that point they had sort of merged over to the Silver Age version. But stayed in adventure. And then after his final appearance in adventure, which, as we covered earlier mike's amazing world says is, is, is adventure number 224 i say it's adventure 259 uh, other than these three appearances in ultra squadron that's it never appeared again uh and i was always a little disappointed that like in all the various crisis books crisis on this earth crisis, that uh, the two alchemists never got to meet in justice league i i just would have loved the heck out of that but it was never to be because of course he was never part of the jsa i was always kind of uh, intrigued that the batmans never met either no, I guess they didn't. No, you're right, they which, didn't. Which kind of makes sense, because as as the Earth 2 Batman evolved, they had that whole thing where he was somehow being controlled by, I forget who, I'm trying to remember, I covered it, and I can't even remember it, but he was event, he was the commissioner of Gotham City after he got his wife killed. That's right, uh, that's right. <laughs> God, that was pithy, I apologize. <laughs> but the Earth 2 Batman got his wife killed, and... He was, like, against the JSA, and then it turned out that he was being mildly controlled. Basically, they, who, whoever the villain was was bringing up all of the resentment he felt, and it was manifesting as him being against the JSA, and then, like, three issues later, he dies. And because of that, I mean, you had you had the Robbins meeting yep. in yep. one of the JLA-JSA, and, and I love that because Robbins in that god-awful, ugly... <laughs> Pseudo yeah, yeah. Batman that, Robin outfit, that, which was just a atrocious gray costume, gray costume with a yellow cape and a yellow like uh, sconce thing in the back behind his head. It is the most hideous outfit you've ever seen. <laughs> and then somehow it gets torn up, and the Robin of Earth One or the Robin of Earth Two wears the costume that Robin would eventually wear, which I was a very big fan of, especially as drawn by George Perez in Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was basically when I was. I'd only been collecting comics for a couple of years, or about a year or two, and somebody handed me Crisis number five, and that was my first issue of Crisis. That was jumping into the deep end, yeah. by the way. Yeah, good lord. <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense that, I mean, I, I as I said, I have not read a lot of Aquaman. Uh, I have, you know, I've read the new series, obviously. I, I read, like, the la- back half of uh, Peter David's run. I read all of Dan Jurgen's run. And he had a backup feature in Action Comics yes, he at did. one point, which was rather good, actually. I, I really, when I was going through my Action Comics issues, I, I, I the Airwave ones got kind of formulaic and annoying after a while, uh, and the Atom ones never did anything for me. But I always kind of liked the Aquaman because the villains, the villains were always interesting. 
don't know if I'd go so far as to say they were good, but they were at least visually interesting and provided a decent. Because wasn't J.M. DeMatteis writing those? Yeah, he wrote. Well, he wrote the Aquaman strip in in Adventure, one of the many times Aquaman ran in Adventure, and then. After a couple of issues where it was drawn by Dick Giordano, they moved it over to Action Comics, and then J.M. DeMatteis continued writing it, and it was then drawn by Don Heck. You know, that's funny about Don Heck. For a while there, I was defending Don Heck to people. Then I realized that I was defending the Don Heck that was inked by Jerry Ordway. And when they did those issues of All-Star Squadron that brought Commander Steel into the book, and he basically... Oh, my God. They did that final issue that never got... Steel, steel number six, yeah, yeah, yeah. And as inked by Jerry Ordway, Don Heck looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I think if I was inked by Jerry Ordway, my stuff would look amazing. Because <laughs> if you actually read the Steel book, which I have, I, ha- I have all five issues because they were cheap, and it's, it's a fun book too. It's a mar- <laughs> Jerry Conway when he came to DC. And I know we're a little off the reservation here, and I apologize, but Jerry Conway when he came to DC. I don't know if it was on purpose, but he's just like, I'm going to marvelize the hell out of these characters. Because <laughs> his two creations were Steel and Firestorm. They were very much Marvel characters in the DC Oh, universe. yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. Boy, I completely forgot about those issues that they were drawn by Heck and Ink by Ordway. Talk about bringing in a ringer for you. Jeez. That is, I mean, man, that is that is just fantastic. Um, we wanted to, before we, we started recording, Mike, were, Mike and I were discussing that we wanted to talk about Ulster Squadron more generally because it is a book both near and dear to our hearts. Shag loves it, too. Um, it is a great title. Like I said, it, this was it for Aquaman. Um, I'm always frustrated that he didn't get to be in it more, but I, I always did appreciate Roy Thomas that he made the effort to bring him in. And uh, when it came time to do the um, 70th anniversary Aquaman post for the Shrine, I went and got a quote from Roy Thomas, even though he really never really wrote the character in anything more than this. I still was like, you know what, Roy? You were significant in the character's history because you obliterated him. You got rid of him. You know, I mean, that's uh, significant. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Roy was enough, enough, nice enough to, to send a quote and even, you know, mentions how he was the one that, that sort of got rid of him. Um, but we did want to talk about also Squadron in a more general sense because this was always one of my favorite comics. It was, you know, in an age where, you know, I've been talking about this incessantly with the book and everything else about buying comics on newsstands. Also Squadron was always at the top of my to purchase list every every month. Uh, I I discovered it later. Uh, it's kind of funny. Who's Who was what introduced me to the All Star Squadron because my very first Who's Who issue was Update eighty seven number one. Okay. And the very first entry in that is All-Star Squadron. So right away, being this, you know, knowing nothing really of the DC Universe as like a continuity, it's like I knew who Batman was, I knew who Superman was, but that's because I watched TV and they were on TV. So to see like this massive team of characters that were all kind of weird looking, and and, and to be fair, the art in that entry is not all that good. Who did it? Uh, Howard Simpson and Malcolm Jones III. Okay. So and it's maybe it's because later I would read the the Jerry Ordway entry. Ah, yes. And all others compare. But no, it's just, you know, you, you the when you when you open it up, it's the young all-stars. But then it's this two-page spread of the team and you have all the heads and I'm like, who are all these characters? And as I started reading through Who's Who, I would get to the World War II characters, and it's like they were part of the All-Star Squadron. And they were also, or and if they were a Justice Society, they always had to mention that the Justice Society became the Justice Battalion. Justice Battalion, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's my uh, Earth-X thing for, uh, for what Shag hates about Who's Who. <laughs> when, I was a, when I was a 
freshman in college, I went into a comic shop and they had a 30 cent box and they had about 30 issues of All-Star Squadron in there. Oh, sweet. And they weren't in, like, the best of condition, but I didn't care because numbers one, two, and three were there. So I'm like, oh, I've got to get these. And I read through them, and that became this mad quest to get the entire series. And it literally took me, like, five years to do. <laughs> because this is before I could go on eBay, type right. All-Star Squadron lot. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and, and buy all 67 all... issues, right, for $10. And it would be like, a, the when I lived in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, all of the comic shops seemed to have the same back stock. Like, if you went to one shop and they didn't have the issue, the other shop wasn't going to have it. And I don't know why it's that is, but it's huh. just how it was. So after I moved down here and started going to one-day comic shows, uh, we talked about issue 31 a little while ago. It's kind of ironic because outside of the second annual which, which I eventually had to order from Mile High Comics. Number 31 was the one I couldn't find. Oh, really? Anyway, okay. It was just like, I, I really want to read this book, but I want to start at the beginning. And because I did that before where I was, it was really, it was at a time where I would do that, that if I didn't have a full run, I'd read the books anyways. So you'd go from like issue 18 to 24, and a lot happened between then. Yeah. So you had to be kind of caught up by the exposition. Thank you, Roy Thomas, for writing a lot of exposition. <laughs> um, but I remember finding it at this one-day comic show and going, yes! <laughs> and the, it was kind of like one of those moments. Now, when the, when my life is made into a movie, because I'm that important, obviously, that scene is going to be there. And the, the, the entire room is just going to hush, and everyone's just going to stare at me like I'm an idiot. <laughs> um, but no, this this book, uh, you know, when I eventually read the whole thing and, and, and all of Infinity Incorporated, I had had a love for these Golden Age characters before, but this kind of cemented it. Oh, it's yeah. just like, after you read this book, if you don't love DC's Golden Age characters, I have no, there, I, I, there's nothing I can do for you. Right. Because right. obviously you're broken as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go that far, but uh, yeah, yeah, there is a sort of a joie de vivre to, to Roy Thomas's writing of these characters that really brought it home for me. And, I mean, you know, as everyone pretty much already knows, like, I have, like, a real obsession with the 30s and the 40s. And, you know, I don't know where that started. I, I have to think it probably started with watching Abbott Costello movies on Sundays on, on the, you know, UHF TV as a kid and, like, just fascinated by the, the period. But, I, like you talked about, you know, cementing your love of the Earth 2 characters, I really think that Roy's intermingling of real-world historical events, people, and places with the All-Star Squadron really did that for me. Like, made my interest in the 40s become sort of an obsession. Because, you know, I mean, he put them in the... the, the um, the New York World's Fairgrounds, which, you know, mm -hmm. was like a real thing. There was a, you know, New York World's Fair, and he put them in the Parisphere and the Trilon, and that was, you know, real buildings in that time. And there was just something, you know, and they're, they're talking to FDR and, and all that stuff, and that, I have to think that that's, you know, was all part of the mix and made me become sort of such an interest in that period. And um, I even, you know, I even got to tell Roy that uh, in an email that told him that I've read so many books about FDR, and that was partly because of All-Star Squadron. And I have to think that, that, you know, that was a big part of it, because he really did make the effort to, you know, make all these things seem so... I mean, I love the idea of the World's Fair. Like, to me, that's just a, an awesome concept. And then you double it up with putting superheroes in there as their headquarters. You're like, oh, my God, that's just the coolest thing I ever heard, you know? <laughs> <It's fantastic. laughs> For a very brief period in 2007, I had a blog called The Paris Fear. 
Did you really? Going. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I got up to issue seven of All Star Squadron. Uh, the coolest thing about having that is that Jerry Ordway emailed me oh. uh, out of nowhere. So it was just like somebody from on high decided to notice you. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, but uh, I just because of things going on in my life, I lost interest. This is why when Scott and I started, when we started Tales of the JSA. At the beginning, we're like, we're going to talk about the JSA from 1975 on. But there was always this undercurrent of, we're going to talk about the All-Star Squadron. <laughs> because, frankly, that's... A, and the great thing about it is that, you know, you get to you get to play with the music and all that. And I had yep, yep. quotes from FDR in the trailer and the opening of it. So, but it's funny that you mentioned that he put all that historical stuff. Because one of the memos he sent out to Dick Giordano, Marv Wolfman, and Len Wein was... Uh, it says, just a few days away from plotting All-Star 45, I've just about determined on a new approach to certain aspects of the book to begin either immediately or in the double size number 50. Since it would affect both the regular All-Star Squadron and potentially could be utilized with the Crisis mini Maxi series, I wanted to put some ideas Na- uh, down. And he goes, namely, I intend to let World War II and the history of the superheroes as well as the other million that's caught up in it start going differently from the way the history books report it, hmm. I'd find some dramatic way to do this, perhaps in connection with some well-known historical event which happens dramatically different. I certainly don't intend to kill off FDR, Hitler, or anyone major, <laughs> because this would be in the nature of an experiment, and I want to leave the way open to have historical timeline reemerge at the end of, say, a year, if things aren't going well. <laughs> so just like, oh, okay. I'm going to change everything, but if it doesn't work out, I've, I've got an, oh. I've got a back door. It was the mixing of history, but it was also that he treated these characters who had, you know, some he created like the second firebrand, but also, you know, John, who, who would care about Johnny quick unless they read this book. Right. James Robinson said golden age was his love letter to this, to this series. And you can really tell with the characters that he utilized. Now, he did some really bad things with Robot Man. But <laughs> Robot Man was always kind of the oddball of the book anyways, because he constantly had that dumb smile on his face. <laughs> and he really couldn't get away with it. It's something, it's something every time I read it, I'm like, stop smiling. You're saying something dark and depressing. Because <laughs> it looks like I my life sucks, and I really can't. It's just like, for the love of God. Uh, one of the things that he would also do is, is connect people in different ways. Now, you've complained about this in the past, and I totally agree with you that sometimes it's like, really, do we have to have the – really, John Byrne, do we have to have all of this connect somehow? Yeah. But <laughs> Roy Thomas managed to connect Dick Grayson to Robot Man by having – Robot Man's assistant, Chuck Grayson, be his uncle. Oh, or yeah, something. see, yeah, you're just getting out of hand. Now, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just because they're both named Grayson. There's more than two Graysons. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> DC Universe. Yeah, I, you, you can take those things a little too far. You really can. I mean, we don't need to, you know, hey, Greedo, if you're not careful, you're going to end up with a laser blade. Like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, come on. And the book evolved. I mean, it started out, you know, very much we're going to keep up with the history. And that was the neat thing about All-Star Squadron is that it starts on December 7th, 1941. <laughs> and you kind of see, especially in the preview book that was in JLA number 193, uh, which you guys discussed recently uh, on with, uh, with the Red Tornado story, they showed what everybody was doing before Pearl Harbor happened. And then Pearl Harbor happens and everyone mobilizes. And from then, he's very specific 
that this is in this time frame. Like, winter lasts forever throughout the first year or two of the book because he only gets up to 1942 by the time the series ends. Yeah, that, that scene with Aquaman takes place in 1942. <laughs> so, but, but you get to see... You get to see, like, real-world events play out, but, but of course, he would do things like he introduced Infinity Incorporated, so you had this whole time travel element to it. You had him, you had several of the All-Stars going over and guest-starring with one of your favorite characters, the Captain Marvel, uh, <laughs> in a really great little two- or three-part series. Oh, that is a great story. That really is a great story. And, but then he, he, you know, he would talk about things that were going on. Amazing Man was a great character because here's a here's a black guy in the 40s. And how does he feel? And at first he's a bad guy because he's forced into it, but then he becomes a part of the team, and they have this great storyline where they deal with the, the race riots that were going on, I think, in Detroit uh, during this time period, and you had this fear, like this this white supremacist character. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Villain, uh, where you had... You had Roy being cute by having Green Lantern tell the guy, I wouldn't care if my daughter was white, black, or green. Um, I would still love her no matter what. And it was just, it was really the characters, though, that drove it through. It was the romance between Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell. It was a robot man's struggle. I mean, this guy, Roy Thomas made me like the Golden Age Adam. And really, when you read Golden Age Adam stories, there's nothing to like there. (laughs) It's a really, it's a really bore. It's, it's like I'm short, but I'm gonna go beat these guys up. But he made, <laughs> you know, he gave the Adam, you know, a, a real personality. And Firebrand was a fantastic character. I loved her, named after his, uh, his wife, Danette. Oh, Danette, of course. So, and, but also, it's, it's kind of cool to see every once in a while the Justice Society show up, until. The storyline that preceded issue 59, where you had, like, the main story and then the backup of Roy retelling this this whole JSA storyline where they were all sent to different planets oh, that's, yeah, lost in the solar system. Thing. And I remember reading through that the first time going, D- really? Really, there's another? Oh, God. Okay, I'll read it. I'm here anyways. I paid my one buck. I'm getting through this. I don't want to waste the 60 cents that I just spent. So what the hell? Yeah. Yeah, it really was an extraordinarily, extraordinarily fun, 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 fun book. I loved it. And uh, I, I really, now I want to go out and back and read them again. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but just to wrap up a little, in terms of setting, the Golden Age Aquaman, I mean, his appearances basically can be summed up in just a couple of short bursts. More fun, 73, to more fun, 107. Adventure 101 through 259. That's an extraordinary run there. And then, um, basically, these three issues of All-Star Squad in 31, 59, and 60. Oh, and you know what? There was one other appearance Aquaman made in the Golden Age. I almost forgot. He is in World's Finest Comics number 6. And that's the only issue he was ever in during that period. It Did was he a, have his own storyline? Yeah, he had his own one. He had, just, had like a seven-page story. It was almost like I – it was weird. And the, it was the same month that he ran in, in More Fun comics. So it wasn't like More Fun was missing his story. It, I almost feel like they just had one too many stories to run. And they were like, oh, let's just put it in World's Finest. Yeah, he made a one-off appearance in World's Finest and that's it. But, uh, you know, you said it's – it's. Uh, I was really, really uh, happy that Roy Thomas – gave him sort of a send-off, you know. It was not the most dignified thing in the world. But in the end, you know, he did get to go out standing among his super friend's pals. So, you know, it was pretty good. In the- and, and that and that shot, which I actually posted on Facebook tonight as I was reading the issue, I scanned that page. It's a really nice piece of art. Now, would it have been better if Jerry Orkway had drawn it? Well, obviously the answer to that question is yes. That's true in almost uh, all cases. Yeah. 
but uh, but you kind of got to see that in Who's Who anyways. But no, it's just, you know, artistically the book had some weak points after Ordway left, uh, which you can only go kind of not down, but maybe flatline after, you know, you have Rich Buckler and then Tony DiZaniga and then Jerry Ordway, I mean, yeah. or Adrian Gonzalez. So, but... Um, it's a fantastic series, and I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, so, yeah, so I guess that's, that's going to wrap it up. Mike, is there anything else we wanted to say about uh, Earth 2 or Ulster Squadron or Aquaman or anything like that? Uh, well, I would, you know, since Frank's going to write in, I would like to say that Martian Manhunter is in my uh, pillars of the DC Universe, too. Oh, so. you're, so, you're going to get a nice email for that. Very, very <laughs> a very long one, but a very nice one. Uh, <laughs> So I will, before we wrap up, uh, we should mention that uh, you can find Firestorm Fan, find FirestormFan.com. Uh, you can also find him on Shag uh, under Firestorm Fan on Twitter and Facebook and Google Plus and I think even Instagram or something like that. I don't know what else he's got going. You can uh, find our – we have our, our Tumblr, which is fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. You can send us an email at firewaterpodcast.net. You can find the Aquaman Shrine at aquamanshrine.net and on Facebook and Twitter. And as of this recording, I will be at, we'll still be just before the New York Comic Con, I will be at the New York Comic Con on Friday, October 11th, doing a signing for my book, Hey Kids Comics, with Paul Kupperberg and Ed Caddo, and that ought to be a lot of fun. There will be a booth 226, Friday at 1 o'clock, so please come by. If you're going to be at the show, please come by, say hi, buy a book maybe, but at the very least, come by and say hi. We really would like to see any of you match heads. And, Mike, tell us about all the various projects you've got going on. Well, I, you know, you mentioned Views from the Long Box, which is my main podcast, which you've been a guest on several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the highest-rated episodes of the year, I might add. I'm making it rain uh, up in here. <laughs> which is why I keep having you back. <laughs> At some point, I'm going to get you and Andy from Hayheads Comics, because those episodes are always the highest rated, so I figure it'll be like, you know, ratings gold if, <laughs> uh, if I could get you. But you can find that at ViewsFromTheLongBox.com. Uh, we have taken a slight break because my, my co-host has moved recently, so he had to kind of spend the month packing and all that. But I do a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, uh, where we are covering the post-crisis era. We have just gotten in to the post-death of Superman era, where he's back and has long hair, and we had to cover the Bloodthirst storyline. <sighs> Well, it wasn't my favorite, but, you know, <laughs> and I love that era, so that's that's kind of saying a lot. You can find that at uh, the Superman homepage, and you can also find it at my blog, which is FortressOfBailey2.com, uh, which is my daily or week daily, as Shag used to be fond of saying, Superman blog, where I post <laughs> mainly stuff from the post-crisis era, but every once in a while I'll, I'll post up something from that's a little bit older just because I found it and I think it's cool, like stuff I've purchased from Paul Pepperberg or something like that, <laughs> all the stuff he's selling on, selling on eBay. But... Um, and go over to ChooChooFreaks.com at the very top of the page. Uh, we'll not only check out uh, Mike Boyle's podcast, uh, which is Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, where he is going through every DC comic from the beginning. <laughs> I, uh, it makes our who's who efforts seem reasonable in comparison. <laughs> But you can also find Tales of the Justice Society of America. There are 73 regular episodes. There's a couple, uh, something we call crisis management, because uh, we're planning on also covering Crisis on Infinite Earths in, in a lot of depth. And you can also find like some fun episodes, like we covered Brave and the Bold, number 184, which has Batman ripping the, off his towel. And the Huntress. And the Huntress. We did that because it was a Christmas episode. We did it one year for Christmas. 
but we started out, like I said, with the all-star comics from the 70s, moved into the adventure comics, uh, did a bunch of the JSA, JLA crossovers. Basically, when we come upon the JLA, JSA crossover of that time period, we stop everything and cover that, <laughs> uh, which is why it took us five episodes to do the all-star JLA crossover. <laughs> but I got to play with uh, a lot of fun music in that uh, by using the theme from uh, 13 Days as our opening and closing theme okay. for those episodes. Uh, but more specifically for this episode, we did cover, we have gotten to ep- issue 31, which you can find on episode... God, it was right after we did that god-awful uh, episode 70. It was a little bit after we did that Black Canary origin you and I are constantly complaining about. I love that story. We're going to cover that one of these days. It's that is crazy. One, of the, one of the great all-time insane two-part stories in, in the history of two superhero comics. But uh, but I want to thank you very much for having me on, sir. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I said I, I really – we wanted to have you on. We're going to have you on for uh, another thing that we have planned. But I really do appreciate you stepping in at the last moment to – fill in for shag and hopefully the government will be funded again next week and he will be back <laughs> and we can do everything else and uh maybe the house will pass some kind of resolution that gets shag back some, sort, some sort of shag funding <laughs> i don't know you never you never know what could happen uh but i said i really do appreciate it you you've had me on your show a bunch of times and uh i appreciate you coming on the fire and water podcast i i, I still say the cover to all-star number 30 would have been a lot better if that dude had plunged the knife into johnny thunder's chest i you know let's go out with that and we're gonna go beat that that's perfect <laughs> <laughs> we all hate johnny thunder that's the one thing we all as americans can agree on <laughs> we all hate johnny thunder so anyway thanks everybody mike thanks for being on the show really appreciate it and uh Fan of flame and ride the wave, and we will see you guys next week. Bye. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. Stand for truth and justice in sea, on land, in air. Firestorm and Aquaman, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah! See, I just think Dr. Fate's pretty no, cool. If I think that's right, that's Johnny Quick. Now, Joey, in the comic or is books... Or Johnny Lightning with his magical thunder. In the comic books, uh, did, uh... What's-his-name take over like they did... Like they're doing now and, uh, usual with Dr. Fate? If you put the helmet on, you have no control? In the original one, Ken Nelson was Dr. Fate. Then his wife took over the mantle. I haven't read it in years, so I don't know what they're doing now. There's 31...